Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. I meet Angus Dodd, Chief Executive of Quintain, at the Wembley Park development, where he takes me on a walk around these 85 acres and talks about his vision for the land around Wembley Stadium. Quintain has already built a number of developments around here. Most of them are built to rent. The properties are managed by Quintain, or TP, which is a subsidiary. These all-inclusive flats provide social activities and social spaces and are really designed for a range of different kinds of renters who perhaps can't afford to buy but still want to live downtown and in a nice location. There's also a number of shops around here. There's the London Design Outlet... There is a new box park offering lots of food venues and a new idea that when you come to a concert at Wembley or another event, that you'd no longer spend your money in the West End and travel in and travel out, but spend a little bit of time around the venue itself. It was a really cold day. So Angus and I walked around the site um, a bit bundled up and a bit windblown, <laughs> but I hope you enjoy this podcast. My name's Angus Dodd. Uh, I'm chief executive of Quintain, which is the owner of Wembley Park in northwest London. Uh, I've been in the job since the middle of 2016. Um, before that, I was at Lone Star, and Lone Star is a private equity fund, which is now a 100% shareholder. And Lone Star took Quintain private uh, from the public markets in the autumn of 2015. Um, and it was effectively my deal, and they, Lone Star said to me, well, if you think it's so good, you should, you should go and run it yourself then. <laughs> it's really the, um, the short history, um, and it's absolutely fantastic job. You know, I, I genuinely could not ask for a more diverse, um, interesting, intriguing, and challenging job than, than the one I have at the moment. So tell me about what you're doing here, where we are. Well, we are in a building called Lansby, uh, which is our most recent build-to-rent development at Wembley Park. Um, we're 12 minutes from Baker Street. That's the most important thing. Um, so um, we are not in the depths of northwest London. We're actually pretty close to central London. Um, Wembley Park, of course, is known you know, all around the world for for uh, England's National Stadium, which in a previous, obviously in the, previ the, the previous version of, this, of the stadium was where uh, England famously won the World Cup in 1966. Um, but in 2007, that old stadium was replaced um, with the stadium that we, we have now with its iconic arch. Um, also on site, we have Wembley Arena, um, the SSE Arena, as it's now known. Um, which is actually a legacy of the Empire Exhibition in the 1920s. Uh, famously, or perhaps not so famously, um, it's the site of uh, the world's first wave machine um, in, a, in a swimming pool. Um, it was the home of the 1948 Olympic swimming um, and was reused, obviously, for the Olympics in 2012. So it's our one historical building, or properly historical building on site. It's a listed building um, from, from the 1920s. Um, so, you know, those two, the arena and the stadium, uh, provide a lot of the, um, 
you know, what's Wembley known for? It's known, known for sport and for music, and it's really through those two venues that that, that, that arises. But what you're doing here um, is a major uh, piece of city. So um, it's sizable. How many acres did you Yeah, say? so sure. So it... Um, so Quintain bought its first piece of land in 2002. Um, uh, so before when the old stadium was in, in place, um, our ownership now comprises 85 acres of contiguous freehold land in London, uh, which is an extremely rare commodity um, to own that much land. Um, to give you some idea, you know, Canary Wharf is a little bit bigger. I think Canary Wharf is 92 acres. Um, but King's Cross is 60-odd, Battersea is 40-odd. So it is a colossal site, and you know, it, it's big in, in anyone's books. It's particularly big in the context of owning that much space in, in London. I think the other key thing about it was that um, much of it was, um, was car park or low-grade property. Um, it didn't, you know, this is not a a state renewal, a residential estate renewal project, it's, it's something that's almost been built from the ground up. Um, so there was, there were actually some legacy buildings from, from the Empire Exhibition again. Um, I don't know if some people will remember the old Wembley Conference Centre, the, the circular building, um, but the, the quality of the buildings on site when Quintain started to buy the land and started to develop was very was very low quality, low value, um, and low in value. And to give you some indication, in two thousand and two, one person lived on site. Wow. So, what was the atmosphere if you walked around here? What would it be like? Um, I think it was just there was no atmosphere. What you know, the typical thing, and I can remember doing it myself. Um, you, if you were coming to a match at Wembley, you'd go to the pub in the West End, you would get out on the train, watch the match, and then get back to the West End as soon as you possibly could because there was nothing to do at Wembley. And, and that's something that we're, you know, we're trying to change. Um, I think we are changing. Um, and, and to make this a place where people want to live, people want to work, um, people want to come and shop, um, People actually just want to go to see what they might like to do rather than knowing in advance what they want to do at Wembley. And I think we're beginning to get um, some of that. Um, you know, box parking opening at the end of last year, um, the LDO, London Designer Outlet, which um, until recently was the only outlet centre inside the M25, um, has been open since two, 2013. Um, hotels... Um, you know, Premier Inn, Hilton, um, we're beginning to create that, you know, that piece of city, that new piece of city that we've, we've always aspired to build. Box Park and the outlet, are they both meanwhile uses? No, no. Um, so the LDO, the outlet centre, is definitely a permanent use. Um, Box Park, um, you know, frankly, I anticipate it being a, a permanent use. Um, Though, um, you know, technically speaking, there's also consent for for a residential building on that on that site in the long term. So, when you're looking at creating this as a more of a destination, more of a neighbourhood, uh, where do you begin? Well, we 
when Lone Star bought Quintain, um, the big decision it made in respect of Wembley Park was to switch from you know, a largely for sale model to a largely for rent model. Um, and that in 2015 looked, um, it looked like it was probably a good idea, but quite a big bet. Um, you know, roll forward to 2018 and you know, I imagine another world where we had been building homes for sale rather than for rent. And, uh, you know, the, the, the story could have been disastrous, would have been disastrous. So um, moving from for sale to for rent, um, I think that that's triggered a lot of the way we think about, about the place um, and about, um, you know, the community that we're, we're building. Um, you know, the rental market, uh, there are plenty of statistics that you can, you, you, you can access showing that the proportion of renters is increasing. Um, home ownership is tough in London, or in the UK generally, but it's particularly tough in London because of affordability. And so there's real market, um, particularly for, I get. I guess an age group, it's probably a, it's an older age group than one might imagine, but certainly 40 and below. Um, so, and <clears throat> so we have to create something, have to create a, a place which is attractive to, to that demographic. Um, on top of that, renters, um, by the nature of the contract that they have with their building owner, are transient you know they could be there for six months they could be you know we would love them to be there longer but but people can 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 move relatively quickly out of a rental home if if what they're being offered isn't up to scratch and so yeah creating a place that was you know continually attractive and um, interesting for residents a place where they wanted to stay um, and didn't want to move from was something that we uh, we thought thought was important or is important. Um, equally, um, you know, it's a sort of you have a long term contract for with the place, or we as owner have a long term contract with the place. Um, if we want people to rent here as opposed to just selling a building and moving on, um, and without you know denigrating the efforts of the house builders, you know, economically speaking, they are motivated to build and sell and move on as quickly as possible. We're motivated to build and retain and retain tenants, uh, residential tenants um, over the long period and indeed attract, you know, attract more in as, as we go on. So knowing your customer yeah. is really important yeah. and what makes them happy. So how, how do you begin to look at that? Do you do you study your, your demographic very closely? We do. Um, and we, you know, we're beginning to build up the data that we need um, on people who have already taken leases. But of course, we've also had to, to try and uh, predict, to forecast, you know, what sort of people want to use our, to come to our buildings in the future. Um, you know, the, the typical tenant to call them typical or average is, is actually, it's misleading. But the typical tenant would be in their early 30s, um, probably earning, you know, a, a little, you know, within 10% of London median salary. So sort of um, early 40s per year. Um, but 
but that average disguises this huge range, you know, from students who, whose parents are clearly funding them to live here, which is great, um, and to families, um, you know, with, sometimes with double incomes, sometimes with single incomes, and to a not insignificant older generation of renters, um, some of whom are downsizing, um, some from the local area, but some from further afield. Um, so that's been our, that's experience of what we, of our tenant base at the moment. What we've also done is tried to, you know, predict uh, what sort of, to, to try and match our buildings to the, to the different segments of the market that we expect to be able to attract in the future. So um, we, we have oh, um, 10 or 12 new buildings which are either under construction, it could even be more than that, but, but at least 10 new buildings which are either under construction or um, are planned and will be under construction in the next three or four years. And each of those buildings has a segment tied to it um, or, or multiple segments tied to it. And, you know, the segments could be uh, sharers, it could be families, it could be millennials, um, it, not really students, but, it, you know, there, there, there are some defined segments which then, to which we then attached um, marketing speak names, which um, uh, I won't call them embarrassing, they're not embarrassing, but, but you know, um, savvy families, um, um, I can't remember, oh, plug and play, um, but each segment has a has a has a name, and each building then is is designed with that um, with that segment in mind. Um, for example, in in Canada Gardens, um, which is one of the big buildings which will which will complete um, during the next twelve months, there's a one and a half acre podium um, with you know pirate ships, um, play areas. Um, a big uh, sort of clubhouse, um, but definitely a product aimed at families. And you're not going to try and let a flat that opens out onto the pirate ship to a millennial couple who don't have any kids. Um, so there's a real, we, you know, we work extremely hard on trying to, to, to fit the segments to the buildings. Um, I think just producing what, from a pure design perspective, just building um, homogenous buildings would be a total failure and actually a total, um, um, uh, you know, it's not what. The opportunity we have here is to build an interesting and diverse collection of buildings and to just build a dormitory project, homogenous product, uh, product would, be, would be a failure. So different architects, different segments, different buildings with different amenity spaces inside them. So we're in this amenity space now uh, in the Lansby building. Um, the amenity space in the new buildings will look completely different to this and offer you know, completely different facilities for, for, for the tenants in those buildings. So the room that we're in is a little bit like a dining room, a little bit like a boardroom table. Um, and I'm guessing that this is for somebody working from home or in a smaller apartment who wants to have a meeting. Or... Yeah, you're spot on. It's a dining room or it's a, it's a boardroom table. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a general trend. It's not, it's not 
um, something that's particular to Wembley, but more and more people working from home, um, flexible working uh, methods. And so, you know, here we have an opportunity for people to come in and have meetings um, or indeed just come and work on their own. Um, if it's free, they can come and use it. If they want exclusive access, uh, they have to pay £40, I think, something like that, for three hours. It's not very much, but they can have exclusive access for, for, for a small payment. Um, next door, we have a kitchen, uh, a proper fully functioning kitchen. And again, you can come down and use that, and you can cook for people or bring somebody in to cook for you, and you can eat in here. And then there's a third room uh, the furthest away from us, which is more, but it's got a TV, big TV, and uh, lots of USB points, so people can come in and um, can work in there. And in some of the other buildings, there are cubicles where we can go and have a look later, but there are cubicles where people can make you know, near enough soundproof cubicles. There's rooms where kids can come down and play on their Xboxes or play pool. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of talk in the press about amenity, and our view is that amenity is important, but there's no point in providing things that won't be used. And so again, you know, matching amenity to the building, to the target market, is extremely, extremely important for us. Are there things that you've changed on this journey? Because I know you mentioned that the first building was actually built for sale and then became a rent. Oh, yeah. But then, you know, what have you learned in this? Yeah, right? yeah. No, no, that, that's absolutely right. So the first, the first building, which was delivered in April 16, um, called Elvin Gardens, um, was built for sale from the very beginning. Um, and to be honest, somewhat butchered into shape at the, at, you know, late on in order to make it rentable. So we converted a couple of ground floor flats into amenity space, um, but they weren't designed for that. Um, and our second building, which was called Alto, really pretty much the same. Um, we didn't make the decision to, we made the decision to, to, to make it for rent during the course of construction. So there were a few things we were able to do later on, um, but not, not that much. The same for this building, give or take. Um, but the buildings that we have coming through in the future have, have been designed for rent from the very beginning. Um, and it's, I mean, it's numerous small things. Um, so slightly different layouts of the flats, uh, a bigger goods lift, um, key fobs rather than keys. Um, uh, Why do the layouts matter? Uh, because you, if, particularly if you're targeting a share of market, for instance, you want two equal size rooms. You don't want a big room and a little room. You want two en suites if possible. You want them on either side of the living area rather than adjacent to each other. Um, but again, we were designed differently for a family. You know, we, um, we also have some flats which are coming through in future schemes which are, you know, um, uh, absolutely with the share of market in mind. So we have some three bed, three bath. We even have some four bed, four bath, um, which are probably unique within, within London, that sort of you know, purpose-built sharer flats. And it's a big market because um, you know, for a four bed, um, 
you know, a four bed, you could, I mean, conceivably, you could have eight people living there. That's in theory. I don't think, think it's unlikely. But, um, you know, four bed costing, it probably wouldn't be 4,000, but, um, you know, three and a half thousand actually per month between six people, that's actually becomes quite, quite a cheap flat um, in London terms. Um, in terms of the cost, I know that I've looked at um, other schemes and you think, well, there's actually quite a lot of services tied to it, but it is a slightly higher rent than perhaps the surrounding area. Is that the same case here? That it yeah, it's, I mean, there is no comparable product in, you know, in HA9. There's lots of 1930s houses which have flats in which you can go and rent from private landlords. Um, the offer here through TP is, and first of all, it's all inclusive. So it includes utilities, uh, it includes Wi-Fi, it includes concierge service. Um, in some cases, it includes gym. So it's all inclusive, and that's definitely been, been one of the, the, the big uh, key differential the differentiators of TP from the very beginning, which is that we will make this easy for people to rent um, and people to understand the, the, the cost structure. So we're now, we're now offering you know, zero deposit renting and totally all-inclusive rents. So not quite totally. You, you, we can't pay people's council tax, so they have to pay their own council tax. But, but that's the only additional, the only additional um, occupancy costs that people, people face. Um, so, um, you, you know, it, it, I would say that these flats are, are expensive relative to the immediate market, um, but there's no comparable in the immediate market. So that's, you know, um, it's a bit of a, um, a, a non-comparison. And then, um, you, you know, the, the, the all-inclusive nature of the, of the offer um, and um, you know the fact that you, you know, you're getting a service level that you would not get from a private landlord so also if you know something goes wrong there's immediate on-site access to an engineer who would who would come and repair it um, do you think that easiness is a, a big attractive factor to the residents uh, yes I do I do I mean I look I don't think it's it's not quite unique to us. There are other build-to-rent operators in the market, but it's definitely why the build-to-rent uh, industry, if you can call it that, it's why it has appeal. Um, because the experience you get from renting with a professional landlord to the experience you would get letting from you or me, who've got full-time jobs, and if somebody rings up and says the fridge is broken, it, what are you going to do? You've got to ring your pet builder. You've got to... You know, you've got to find a time when the tenant is at home to get the pet builder to come in. Whereas if that happens here, it's just, you know, within, within a small number of hours, the, the problem is, is fixed or the problem has, um, you know, somebody's paying attention to the problem. So I think that's, that's the real appeal. Um, you know, I think also that, you know, the government has, is, is actively discouraging the private buy-to-let market through tax disincentives, and so actually the, you know, the supply of 
private landlord flats is is decreasing. Um, you know, at the extreme. You know, people do have bad experiences. I mean, I'm not saying that all private landlords are rogue, are rogue landlords. That's a, that's you know, that's clearly not right. But um, we we ran a competition this time last year through Time Out, um, where we got people to. Uh, tell us what their worst experience of renting in, in London was. And we had 19,000 entries. But um, there were some great stories about, um, you know, usually involving rats and rodents and, <laughs> and um, leaking roofs and, um, you know, abusive landlords. And you don't get any of that here. The rental revolution is what it's... Uh, oh, the yeah, rental yeah, rebellion, the rental of course, yeah. uh, and yeah. it's it's quite a big marketing campaign. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, we, um, you know, we are, you know, we are a place that needs to market itself. You know, Wembley has a, or had a reputation. Didn't you know? It's it's not. Um, I guess it's like a lot of these places. I mean, you know, Canary Wharf, King's Cross. You know. Battersea Power Station, uh, London is, is, I think, very good at, at letting places emerge from relative uh, despondency to, to actually relative attraction, attractiveness, and, and that's what we're doing. I mean, we, we are, you know, we're clearly, um, you know, with Brent Council's help and lots of, it's not just us, but, but we're pushing Wembley Park as a, as a destination and as an up-and-coming up neighbourhood. Um, and within that, as a subset of that story, there is, you know, we, we definitely want to attract people to come and live here. And the idea behind the rental rebellion uh, marketing plan was that, you know, you, you, you come on renters, you can rebel against what, you, what your previous experience has been. Um, and here's, you know, a, a way um, through what TP offers, um, you know, there's a way to do it differently. Um, and to rebel against the um, the past and what what people have experienced in the past and the um, tremendous pressure to get on the housing ladder, presumably. Yes, I mean, you know, we are. You know, there's some very, you know, it's very clear now that, um, and I don't think the, you know, Brexit, if we're allowed to mention it. Um, it won't change this, which is that there's, you know, there's population growth within London. Uh, house prices are are too high, and house prices need to come down by half in order to redress that that unaffordability metric. So over time, maybe that happens, but but in the next within the next 10, 20 years, um, the pressure on housing in London is only going to increase and. It's going to be tougher for people to get on the housing ladder and save enough deposit to buy a home. Uh, yet people should be able to, you know, should be should have access to good quality homes. Um, you know, they should they should they should shouldn't be forced to live in in substandard flats. And um, you know, and that's what the build to rent, the PRS um, industry is really seeking to. You know, that's the gap that it's seeking to to fill. Um, I think also there's something else going on, which is that, you know, and, it, and it's to do with Uber and Netflix and, 
you know, this idea that you don't need to own a car, you don't need to own a TV, you, you, you know, that, there's, that, that it's attractive to some people to have that flexibility and to feel that they could, um, you know, they could go and try Wembley Park for six months. We'd obviously like them to stay longer and then they'll go and live in the Olympic Park for six months and then they'll go to, you know, Elephant and Castle for six months and, and that, you know, actually... I think for some people there's an attraction in that in that flexibility, um, and perhaps it's born from you know not being able to get on the housing ladder, but but nevertheless it's it, you know there's there's this move away from ownership and a bit more of a transient relationship with your with your your, your material possessions. I think is a, is something that that. Um, that has encouraged the, the build to rent industry as well. I think the other thing is that, you know, from an investment perspective, um, and you know, we, we have a, we have a, um, a shareholder with, with lots of capital and deep pockets. And one of the things that attracted Lone Star to this was definitely the opportunity to build, you know, long-term income streams, um, which should be more or less um, index linked um, there's strong correlation between between rent and inflation. There always has been, um, and so the, so, the, so the existence of institutional appetite for the completed income streams or the income streams that the completed product produces that's also been a um, you know a significant um, driver in the in the industry and, and has encouraged developers like us to to do what we're doing. I read something about uh, how long people who've bought in Nine Elms anticipate to stay, and it was a, it was very short. Was it? It was maybe yeah, maybe one. Yeah. They were anticipating to move between one and two years. Um, what does success look like here in terms of how long, on average, you're kind of guessing people will stay? Um, we, you know, all, um, so how shall I answer that? Um, so you know, we would definitely like sixty to 70% of our tenants to stay at the end of their leases. Um, and leases are really a minimum of six months up to, I mean, we, we, we would grant long-term leases, um, but people have tended not to grant long-term leases. So I'm answering your question in a roundabout way. But so, so firstly, we would like, you know, retention rates to be 60 or 70%. And that's a number we're, we're moving towards. We're below, we're below it at the moment, but we would, we're, we're moving towards that number. Um, and then within each building, we would like, you know, you, you want to have some vacancy um, the whole time. So you've got room to, to move people around if they want to move up or down in size of flat. And also, of course, you, you know, you want, you want, you want there to be demand for, for, for your vacant buildings. So we would like to have hard buildings running at sort of 95 to 98% occupancy. And that's what the, the two completed buildings are running at that. This is obviously relatively new, so it's, it's still in lease-up lease mode, the building you, we're in now. Do you have a sense what drives retention? Uh, yes, we do. Um, so, you know, we building up data now on why people leave. Um, at this point, I would say it's, 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 you know, it's people have got, they split up with their girlfriend or split up with their boyfriend, they've got a new job. 
they had to move um, um, because, because work have asked them to move somewhere. Um, it doesn't seem to be, uh, or we get very little evidence that people are moving because they don't like Wembley or moving because they don't like TP, uh, which is obviously a good thing from our perspective. Um, it goes back to my point about it being transient. I always think about it, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the sort of hierarchy of life's decisions, where does, um, where does renting sit? So probably, you know, getting married is maybe the, the most significant decision you make. Buying a house, second, or maybe having kids, a second or third. Uh, you know, you, you can't, buying a car, going on a big holiday, you know, where do, I, and it's somewhere around there. But it's buying a car or going on a big holiday. I think is, is so you can you know you can make it's not it's not a huge decision it's a significant decision but it's not a huge decision so people are prepared to make it you know every how often do you buy a new car you know every five years every four years I don't know how often do you go on holiday you know more frequently than that so so that's so and that's you know when we talk about our marketing and you know that's what we're that's that's what we're trying to 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 you know to um, uh, to replicate is make people making that decision um, or that level of decision to come to come here. It's partially done. We've got lots of building still to come. When does the whole vision complete? Well, if we keep going at this rate um, and we didn't buy any more land, then uh, 2026, 2027. So fast forward to 2027, let's say. Yeah. And I'm walking around. What's it like? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, there are bits that you didn't expect to see. There's some nice open spaces. There is some good quality architecture. Uh, it doesn't feel like a gated community. It feels like you can visit or live and shop or work and you know it's sort of the same experience um, it feels like somewhere that has meshed in with the surrounding community and that's both physically so that you don't feel that you're you know you're walking into a gated community as I said um, but also sort of emotionally and socially that, that people who live outside feel that they can come in and shop here. Uh, people who live outside could work here. Um, I'd also like uh, beyond that, you know, the, the, I think this you know, interaction between, you know, people working here and living here. So we already have we have we have some artist studios and uh, that you can see across the garden there. Um, so we we have you know one of the artists has just taken a, a flat in TP in a TP building and that that I thought that was great. That means at last there's you know, well not at last but we're beginning to see all right it's only one but we're beginning to see somebody who who has got some workspace here and has bought into the place to the extent they're willing to um, to, to take a take a flat. And I'd like to see it in reverse as well. So I'd love to see some, some, some residents in our buildings, you know, setting up little businesses or going to work in Box Park or going to work, you know, for Brent Council. Um, and so, you know, this two-way flow, because I think that's how, um, that's how the place will become a, 
uh, uh, you know, it, it won't become a transient place if that happens. People, people will buy into it for the, for the longer term, or will have bought into it for the longer term. So those are high, I mean, that it, we've, I, we've talked with other people about that, um, the challenge of the edge of an, of an estate, um, the challenge of, of that permeability and that to and fro from the surrounding neighborhood. H how, do you, um, how do you deal with the crossing in the road? Well, you, you know, look, you, you, you have almost a grid system. We're looking at a plan here in front of us. You have, have almost a grid system that has some natural flow through. Um, you also have this big sort of ceremonial route from Wembley Park Station to the stadium itself. Um, so it's, you know, it's making sure that the, 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 the boundaries, that the buildings which are facing outwards don't look like walls. Um, that they, you know, particularly it comes down a lot to ground floor level. So it would be, the easy thing to do would be to put all our interesting building, all our interesting uh, ground floor retail uses sort of facing inwards. Whereas actually, you know, if we can make them facing outwards, then that, that starts to pull people, pull people in. Um, it's small things like, you know, at the, at the junctions, you know, making sure that people can see, get, get good visibility and there's a sort of sense of intrigue in wanting to walk down those routes. Um, you know, some of it's to do also with, the, with estate management and security. Um, and, you know, not, for example, discouraging skateboarders and scooters on site. You know, we, we should invite those sorts of uses onto site. Um, there's an area down at the bottom here called um, Whitehorse Square, um, close to Wembley Stadium Tube, and we just have been interviewing architects, or in fact, selected architects at the moment, um, to, you know, to redesign and, and, and redevelop that. And you know, uh, you know, one of the pieces of the brief was to design areas or create areas where, which appealed to you know, teenagers. What you find in a lot of places, there's lots of, lots of stuff for toddlers to do. There's lots of sort of you know, play spaces, which is fine, but, but actually people grow up and, um, you know, we, we would, um, you know, I love that area on the South Bank where, you know, the skateboard parks. Mm -hmm. Now, that's hard to recreate, but, um, but areas like that um, across the site, we run these parkour classes across the site from our community centre at the Yellow, and, that, and that's, all right, it's a small thing, but it's definitely, you know, the, the idea being that it should, should invite in um, you know, uh, teenagers, kids from around who, who uh, perhaps wouldn't normally come into the site, but but there's something interesting for them to do here. And um, uh, it feels which, which radical to me that you're looking to attract teenagers. I don't hear that a lot. That's part of this idea that you want people to stay. Yeah, I want people to stay. I want people to. to well, it's two things. I want people to live in that. I want people to feel that they could have a house for the long, or a flat for the long term here. And if they have kids, kids grow into teenagers, so you can't emasculate the teenagers, you can't ban teenagers, you, you know, you have to encourage them in, that's number one. But secondly, you know, Brent is, um, you know, we're, we're sitting in urban London here. We're not, we're, you know, thousands of people, you know, look from the top of our buildings here and you just see the endless suburbs of Northwest London. 
stretching out forever. And, you know, I want, you know, this should, this, I've said it before, but this should be a development that, that, that meshes in with those, those suburbs, not somewhere where it's exclusive, um, you know, to the people who can, you know, can afford to live here or, or, or wish to live here. I don't see it as that radical, really. I just think it's, you know, it's, it's just normal. And it's part of making a good piece of city is one that yeah, yeah. people have fun in. Yeah, people have fun in. And that's, you know, I, I you think you've actually that's very well put. You know, what, what do people, um, you know, even before we started doing anything, what would people have associated Wembley with? Well, actually, it's having fun. You know, it's coming to matches, coming to gigs, either at the arena or the stadium. And that's, you know, and I guess what we want to move from is, well, I only come to Wembley to have fun with something I bought a ticket for to somewhere where I can come and have fun, you know, 365 days a year. So another challenge maybe um, is that in a way, some of the newer developments you have kind of that mix of affordable, you might have a mix of yeah. social and you right. might have um, as well as uh, shared ownership and then maybe even luxury and or yeah, less or, expensive. Yeah, yeah. But here, how does that work in terms of creating a social mix? Is there a worry that you end up with more of a mono culture just because of the nature of PR? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, um, it, you know, we, we of course, you know, there is social housing, affordable housing on site. And it's, as you rightly say, there's a full gamut of, of different tenures. So there's discounted market sale, discounted market rent, there's London Housing Bank. Um, some of it has been sold off to housing associations. Um, but actually, in the, the, the model we've been trying to move to um, for all the future plots is that TP itself will manage the social housing, particularly the discounted market rent. Um, not the sales stuff, but the discounted market rent. So that actually, I mean, I'm sure people will guess, but you shouldn't really know whether your neighbour is in a discounted flat or in a full price flat, because the management's the same, the, 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 um, the fit-out's the same. So to kind um, of have a bit more yeah. cohesion in yeah. the same. If you talk to, if you talk to Brent, um, you know, they are very keen on... Um, you know, mixing mixing affordable tenants and and um, and and you know RTP residents, um, and that this is a good this is a good thing, and that um, you, you know you you clearly don't want ghettos or um, you know real distinctions between you know between affordable and and, and full 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 price flats. Um, and by the way, I mean, I take you to see it, but, um, you know, the uh, affordable housing in this building here is spectacular with this, you can't quite see it from here, but with this great prow, um, sharp edge prow, um, which Flanagan Lawrence designed. Um, I think the, the, the flats in that, which are affordable flats owned by Network, are actually spectacular. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.